1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. From COVID-19 policies to geopolitics, there are a lot of reasons that Apple is choosing to make and to sell more of its gadgets outside China. We look at where all that business is going for Apple and all its suppliers.
2: And paleo diets are popular these days. They include lots of meat, fruit, vegetables, and nuts, and no dairy, sugar, or processed foods. But these diets bear little resemblance to what people actually consumed tens of thousands of years ago.
1: First up, though. His devotees call him the magician and the winner. Today, they chanted another name, Bibi, king of Israel. Sixteen months after being ousted as prime minister and still dogged by corruption charges that he's always denied, Benjamin Netanyahu looks set for a dramatic political comeback. Exit polls from yesterday's general election suggest that Bibi and his Likud party will be able to draw enough coalition support for him to return as prime minister. We still have to wait for the final results, he said, but one thing is already clear. We are on the brink of a very big win. Another thing that's clear is that Mr. Netanyahu is a gifted politician and political survivor. And after yet another election, he's right back where he wants to be, at the center of Israel's messy politics.
3: Netanyahu seems almost certain to have a majority in the Knesset, Israel's parliament. Anshul Pfeffer is The Economist's Israel correspondent. There is still an outside chance of a couple of small opposition parties or what will be opposition parties if Netanyahu wins, of crossing the electoral threshold. And if they succeed in doing so, then we may have a tie, but that's looking less and less plausible at this moment. So what would that mean? What would then happen in in order to form a government? So Israel has a proportional representation, multi-party electoral system, which means that no party has ever won an outright majority on its own. And this election is no... Exception Actually, Netanyahu's Likud party has received roughly the same number of seats it had in the previous Knesset, around 30, which is just a quarter of the Knesset. In other words, he will need agreements with at least three coalition partners, which are parties which have supported him throughout the election. But the actual coalition agreement stage, the negotiations, are only going to start happening over the next few days. And they could be quite difficult for Netanyahu because... He needs these parties for his majority. They're going to have a long list of demands, whether it comes to legislation, budgets, and posts in the new cabinet. And all those things will be fought over. And Netanyahu will try and bring down their demands, but it won't be easy. Let's wind back a bit. How did we get to this election in the first place? So our conversation, Jason, feels very much Groundhog Day.
0: Amid the most serious coalition crisis since the last election nearly four years ago, Israeli Prime Minister... We've
3: had this now five times over the last four years.
4: Well, today is finally election day for the third time in less than a year.
3: Trying to analyze an Israeli election on the morning after.
1: Israeli TV exit poll showed no decisive victory for any
3: side. And we've had five elections because the Israeli public is really still split down the middle over one issue. And that is whether Netanyahu, who is in court over corruption charges, can become again a prime minister. He, For the last 16 months, he's been the leader of the opposition. Last year, after election number four... The opposition managed to get its act together and eight different parties, right-wing parties, centrists, left-wingers, Islamists even got together and managed to form a very narrow coalition, which turned Netanyahu out of office back in June last year. So what's different about this election also is that Netanyahu was the challenger instead of being the sitting prime minister. And what do
1: Mr Netanyahu's plans look like this time around in terms of forming a coalition?
3: Taneo himself has been quite vague on the policies of his coalition. He's just said... I will have a coalition with Likud, that's his party, with Likud's natural allies, and he's talking about the far-right parties and the ultra-Orthodox parties who are supporting him, and they're the ones who now have a majority. But he hasn't said really what he intends to do with this coalition, and that's stuff we've been hearing mainly from his partners. So his ultra-Orthodox partners are talking about budgets for their schools and being immune to various government demands that they teach general studies and what's perhaps most worrying are the policies of religious Zionism the far right list we're talking about what they call governance and basically it means the police cracking down on Arab Israelis Israelis, and Palestinians and they want actually to control the police in the next government and that's something that Netanyahu may be forced to give them
1: you say that still the country is split right down the middle about Mr. Netanyahu. Why is that? Why does he maintain that that level of popularity and that ability
3: to divide the country? Well, Netanyahu has built a coalition of like-minded parties, which is backed by around half the country, around the populist notions of Jewish identity and of power and what they call a very vague sense governance. And like I said, this is half of the country, but the other half of the country fear Netanyahu. They feel that he has used all these themes to polarize and to split different communities and to play them off against each other. And there's a fear that Netanyahu, who is facing his own trial, will will try and drastically weaken the legal system and the, and the courts... Netanyahu's case is basically three separate charges of accepting illegal gifts from wealthy benefactors and of trying to interfere or intervene with the way that news organizations covered him in dealings with the owners of those news organizations. He obviously hotly denies having done anything wrong. So this is very much a question of, of where Israelis stand on these core issues issues, both of identity and of how the Israeli government should operate. It's something that has really caused Netanyahu to become the main issue here, is he's someone that Israelis want to continue holding their fate. He's the longest serving prime minister. He's been in office of a total of 15 years. Nobody comes close to his experience. And many Israelis think, well, we need someone like that. Nobody else can replace him. And many Israelis are are, are very afraid of what Netanyahu will do when he returns to office. But there is certainly almost a cult of personality around Bibi. Without a question, Netanyahu has perfected the art of the populist nationalist politician. We now see so many examples around the world and he's been doing it for longer than any of them. He's been on the scene before Donald Trump, before Jair Bolsonaro, even before Silvio Berlusconi. You could almost say that he invented it, this way of making yourself a representative of the underdogs fighting a mythical elite, personifying the nation's will and even the nation's ability to to survive and exist. And Casting out anybody who opposes you as part of some kind of left-wing defeatist, even traitorous minority who are endangering the nation. These are all things that Netanyahu has been building up for nearly 40 years now. And we've seen a masterclass of how to do it in this election. And in many ways, this is how he has remained for so long on the scene and come back from every defeat to bury his opponents.
1: And so with all of that in mind and the way things now look on the ground, how do you think Bibi would govern if this coalition comes together as expected?
3: So the real question is what kind of Netanyahu we're getting now after he spent 16 months out of office. The Netanyahu we've seen in the past had always a two-stage victory. First of all, he made sure that he had a majority with the parties aligned with him, the parties which share similar ideology to Likud and which support him during the election campaign. But then in the second stage, during the coalition building, he would always reach out to a centrist or even to a left-wing party, or more than one party, to try and build a more balanced coalition, not necessarily because he wanted to dilute his own ideology, because he wanted room to be able to maneuver.
2: (laughs) Netanyahu
3: is promising to serve all of the Israeli population. The question is, is Netanyahu going to do that? Or is this uh, Netanyahu coming back with a vengeance? Will he now just govern with a small far-right coalition and use that to get out of his own trial and perhaps to dismantle a large part of the Israeli legal establishment?
1: As you say, though, this is the fifth election in four years. It's hard to imagine how we're not going to find ourselves here again, having been around this loop so many times. Is this, are we on a road to a more stable situation
3: now? it would be hard to predict an election not taking place in 2023. We've had an election or two in each of the last four years. Netanyahu's majority means that he can form a coalition finally. But it doesn't mean that he'll have a comfortable time governing, stuck with parties which have very heavy demands of him. And it's entirely conceivable that At a point in a few months, once he's back in office, he'll decide, actually, I don't mind holding yet another election as long as I'm now the prime minister, because we can carry on with this cycle of never ending elections as long as I'm in office. And many Israelis are expecting to be back at the polls in a few months time. Angel, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jason. I hope we won't be talking about election number six in the next few months.
2: In an increasingly rocky landscape for tech giants, Apple seems able to glide above the obstacles and pitfalls tripping up its peers.
0: At Apple, we're fortunate to be surrounded by people who strive to innovate together to create products and experiences
2: In its latest quarterly results, the company reported record revenues of $90.1 billion, exceeding analysts' expectations despite a strengthening dollar.
0: But as we become more and more dependent on their products, they're going to keep powering through, and I think this stock is going to surprise
2: people. Its products continue to delight customers around the world. You can hear some of them cheering excitedly at the opening of a new Apple store in the Chinese capital of Beijing. Apple's extraordinary rise from near bankruptcy to global dominance in little more than two decades owes much to its bet on China. Apple banked on Chinese factories to manufacture its computers, iPhones, and other gadgets. And it wooed Chinese customers, who in some years provided the company with up to a quarter of its revenue. But now, that long love affair is souring.
5: For a long time, China has been at the center of Apple's massive international supply chain. But it seems that in the next few years, that's going to change pretty rapidly. Tom Wainwright is tech and media editor at The Economist. Right now, about 95% or more of Apple's products are assembled in China. But within three years, analysts reckon that that figure could drop to more like 75%. So quite a big change in just a few years. And we're seeing more and more of Apple's products being made in countries like India, in Vietnam, which Apple sees now as a good alternative base from which to make the gadgets that it sells worldwide. Logistically, it's clearly a big shift. But culturally, how big a change is this from Apple? It's
2: move away from China.
5: It's a really big deal. China's been a huge part of Apple's success over the last couple of decades. And Tim Cook, who's the chief executive, has really been quite a big proponent within the company of the China strategy. He's been a a frequent visitor to China over the years. We've seen
0: China continue to change and evolve. And we are grateful at Apple that you have opened your doors to us and allowed us to be part of the community here. We encourage China to continue to open up. We see that as essential, not only for China to reach its full potential, but for the global economy to thrive.
5: And he's maintained good relations with the Chinese government, which has often been a difficult balancing act. Apple has followed local requirements to remove certain apps and to hold Chinese customers' data locally where Chinese authorities can access it. But now it's making this quite hurried sort of decoupling away from China. And it reflects really a, a big change in the world economy as well. So given that China has been so central to Apple's success, why is it turning away? I think probably the main reason really is just to spread the operational risk that Apple faces when it's making these millions of gadgets every year. We saw during the COVID-19 crisis that Apple had problems like when lockdowns in Shanghai earlier this year meant that one of its factories of its suppliers was closed. And it turned out this factory seemed to be making most of the MacBooks that are sold worldwide. So Apple customers faced delays of months because of this particular factory closure. And actually, just this week, there was a case where there was an outbreak of COVID at a factory in Zhengzhou in China, which was run by Foxconn, the company that makes most of Apple's iPhones. And Foxconn is reportedly having to shift production to other parts of China as a result of this. So I think a big part of it is just having operations in in different places. So that if one country gets hit by, say, an outbreak of illness or any other problem, there are other options there. And India and Vietnam seem to be the countries to which Apple is turning first for this. Why those countries? What are they offering Apple that China can't or won't? A big part of it is cost. China's still a very competitive place, but average wages in China have more than doubled just over the past decade. A Chinese manufacturing worker now probably makes about twice as much as somebody does in India or Vietnam who's doing the same job. One of the things that has held Apple and others back from investing in countries like India is that the infrastructure has been pretty rubbish, but that's been getting better in recent years. The Indian government are offering all kinds of subsidies, tax holidays, you name it. Foreign executives say the work ethic is similarly strong in places like Vietnam to what it is in China. And I think another big reason is the domestic market. And this particularly is a big deal in the case of India, which is already the world's second largest market for smartphones after China. And historically, Apple hasn't had much of a share of that because Indian consumers on the whole can't afford Apple's expensive products. But gradually that's changing. It was just this July that Apple reported that its revenues in India had doubled in the last quarter year on year, mostly based on iPhone sales. So I think it sees a big opportunity there selling these gadgets to Indian consumers in particular, and to some extent those in Vietnam as well. And how is this shift being perceived in China? I think having a big client like Apple in the country has been a point of pride for China. It's given them some kind of clout, really, that in some years, Chinese consumers have contributed as much as a quarter of all of Apple's revenues. So I think having Apple around is something that in some ways China has been proud of. But I think there's been a bit of a shift recently. We saw Xi Jinping China's president say to the Communist Party Congress that he wanted China to have self-reliance and strength in science and technology, which was a phrase that he repeated five times during this speech. The implication of that is that he wants national champions to play a bigger role. And for a foreign company like Apple, that suggests that things aren't going to get any easier when it comes to selling to the Chinese consumer. And so the shift is really down to changing geopolitics that's the big, big underlying thing behind this. I mean, you've got the operational risk spreading, you've got the costs, but the huge strategic reason that also makes this shift sensible for Apple is the politics. You've got this backdrop of rising tensions between China and America, which has been going on for a while, and which is making China just a difficult place for Western firms to do business. We had an example just this summer where Apple reportedly had to ask Taiwanese manufacturers to label their products made in Chinese Taipei rather than made in Taiwan, which apparently is something that the Chinese customs officials now insist on. And at the same time, we've seen America become more aggressive as well in its competition with China's tech firms. Earlier this month, on October the 7th, America announced a ban on U.S. persons working for some Chinese chip makers And on the same day, it added some Chinese companies to a list of unverified firms, which its officials have been unable to inspect. And reportedly, this led Apple to freeze a deal that it had been on the brink of making to buy iPhone memory chips from one of these companies, YMTC. So this is just the most recent example of how doing business in China is more fraught with risk for Western companies than it used to be. Does Apple's moving out of China negate that risk, at least where U.S. authorities are concerned? I think for now it mitigates that risk pretty well. I think looking further down the line and imagining a worst case scenario where relations between America and China continue to get worse and worse. One thing that is worth keeping an eye on is that even though Apple is moving more of its production out of China, the nationality of the companies doing this manufacturing increasingly actually is Chinese. So... If you look at some of these factories in Vietnam, a lot of them actually are run by Chinese companies. JP Morgan Chase, a bank, forecasts that within a few years, the share of production of Apple products done by Chinese-owned companies is going to increase in spite of the fact that this production is increasingly taking place outside of China itself. And you can imagine a scenario where America could begin to target not just production in factories physically located in China, but potentially production in factories owned by Chinese companies. And at that point, companies, including Apple, would perhaps be interested in trying to find suppliers of other nationalities. And you can see already people say in India that Apple is actively on the lookout for Indian suppliers rather than simply foreign suppliers that happen to be based in India. And in Vietnam as well, I mean, I I think it will be a while before Vietnamese companies catch up, but that's certainly their long-term aim. There's a real sense that doing business with Chinese companies and doing business in China is just becoming more and more risky for Western companies. And there was one Western investor in Asia that I spoke to who said that gradually it seems that for Western companies that do business with China, the noose is tightening. All right, Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. You can hear more from Tom
2: on our sister podcast, Money Talks, out later today. This week's episode looks at the wider tech reckoning. Trillions of dollars have been wiped off the value of companies like Meta and Alphabet in the final days of October. Is this just a correction or a sign of a broader shift? You can find Money Talks wherever fine podcasts are bought and sold. Are you listening to this podcast on your lunch break? You might be eating a bacon sandwich, cheese and pickle crisps, and a fresh blueberry muffin on the go. All delicious, deeply processed food made possible by modern capitalism. Yummy, but not very healthy. And not what our ancestors would have eaten tens of thousands of years ago when they were hunter-gatherers. Advocates of paleo diets argue that people would in fact be much healthier if they ate like their ancestors.
4: In today's video, we're exploring exactly what you can eat on the Paleo diet. So if you're still a bit confused on what did people eat in the Paleolithic era, definitely keep on watching this video.
5: Paleo, from what I've understood,
1: is the caveman diet. So it's whatever was available back then. Right, it's a simple concept.
4: If it wasn't around in caveman times,
1: you don't eat it.
2: But do contemporary nutritionists have an accurate idea of what those ancestors of ours actually ate?
4: The diets of ancient humans are far more diverse than advocates of paleo eating might actually imagine.
2: Natasha Loder is The Economist's health policy editor.
4: So for a long time, it was thought that humanity's Stone Age ancestors really majored on the meat and not so much on the carbs. But modern hunter-gatherers, it turns out, have an exceptionally diverse diet, and it's likely that their ancestors did too. I spoke to a professor of evolutionary anthropology and a global health expert, Dr. Herman Ponser. And he's worked with the Hadza, a group of hunter-gatherers in Tanzania. And he spent quite a lot of time living and eating with them.
0: The Hadza are a society of traditional hunter-gatherers. They don't have any domesticated plants or crops or animals or vehicles or electricity or plumbing or anything like that. They live in grasshouses and gather their food from the wild landscape around them every day.
2: Why is studying modern hunter-gatherer's diets a good way to understand what our ancestors ate?
4: Well, Dr. Ponce had a good answer for this.
0: So humans have been evolving as hunter-gatherers for over two million years, actually even before we were Homo sapiens, right? Early members of our genus, the genus genus Homo, were hunting and gathering. So that's the lifestyle in which we evolved, in which our bodies, Bodies evolved, and if we want to understand what that lifestyle does to our bodies, how we grow up and grow old in that kind of an environment, then living hunter-gatherers are one way to understand that. Of course, you know, all humans alive today are all equally modern, but people who, who live that kind of lifestyle allow us to ask questions about what that lifestyle does to our bodies.
4: One bias in assessing true paleo diets is the archaeological record. The sort of things that persist in the record are stone tools and bones that would have been used to eat, to hunt, to handle meat. But the evidence of plant eating is much more fragile. But if you look at teeth that you find at fossil sites, you can find embedded in them, if you look, starchy grains along with plaque the sorts of things that indicate carbohydrates were in the diet. And we now think that early humans ate plenty of starch-rich plants. And we also have a highly acidic stomach, the sorts of stomach that you would need to destroy pathogens. And it's the sort of stomach you find in scavengers like hyenas and buzzards in modern day life. And all those lines of evidence points to human beings as a sort of very, very Catholic kind of eater.
2: So does all of that provide any insight into the optimum human diet? Have modern advocates of paleo eating got it wrong?
4: What that starts to tell us is that there may not actually be an optimal human diet in terms of the proportions of meats, vegetables and grains and dairy that we have. And, you know, all those food plates that governments are keen to sort of indicate, well, what proportions of this or that and the other or maybe actually They're not as important as we think. We certainly need to get a broad array of nutrients and foodstuffs in our diet, but perhaps the proportions don't really matter so much because humans are quite well adapted to using different proportions. And that's what Dr. Poncer believes.
0: I don't see any evidence for some singular, perfect, you know, evolved natural diet that humans are evolved to need. I see humans as being actually. Quite different, being evolved to eat a lot of different foods and and do just fine on a wide range of diets.
4: This, though, doesn't really answer the question of why hunter gatherers are generally thin, and a growing fraction of people on this planet are fat, and they're desperately tinkering with their diets to try and find out how to not be fat. And a crucial insight into this question actually came a couple of years ago. Kevin Hall and a group at the National Institutes of Health in America showed that. In a trial over four weeks, people who are given a diet of processed food will eat 500 calories more per day than those on the unprocessed diet. And simply put, it's this diet that's affecting how much we eat.
2: So should we all be eating like the Hadza?
4: Well, no, I wouldn't recommend it. It's not Hoke cuisine, I will say, and not to everyone's taste.
0: I don't think anybody's going to be opening a Hadza restaurant anytime soon. If you've had boiled warthog, you know that it's it's not particularly delicious. The foods they prize are the organ meats out of an animal. Testicles are particularly sought after. <laughs> These are things that would be hard to market, I think, in a Western culture.
4: Not quite a blueberry muffin, then.
0: Natasha, thanks for
2: joining us today.
4: You're welcome.